Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of How's the Pressure? I am your host, Haley Winter, and this week I'm chatting with Kate McKinnon. Now, Kate is a good friend and collaborator with one of my previous guests, Robin Schur. Kate is a craniosacral therapist who got her training through the Upledger Institute, and she is a licensed physical therapist in both California and the United Kingdom. She's a passionate advocate of craniosacral therapy and the importance of healthy touch. Kate has been using touch to support her patients in their healing and accessing their physical potential for the last 30 years. She spent many years working with children with disabilities, and that's where she first came across craniosacral therapy. Now, the idea of having this conversation with Kate was to explore the concepts of safe and compassionate touch, as well as how touch therapy can extend beyond the actual massage room. I believe that even though most massage therapists know that touch is important, it's not always clear how we can implement that skill in the world when it doesn't involve a table or a massage room. If the work we do has the power to help people, how can we leverage that power to expand to other people without us having to do a 90 or a 60 minute session? Well, this is where we get to the project that Kate is partaking in. I believe it provides an example of how we as body workers can participate in different ways and on different scales than we're used to. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Kate. I know that I did. I give you Kate McKinnon. All right, Kate, thank you so much for joining me. You're welcome. You know, I bring on a lot of different guests, and sometimes it's to talk about specific modalities or very... Um, I'm not saying jargon, but it's focused on massage so specifically and less about touch in general. And so I'm really, I enjoy the opportunity to, to expand the, the kind of the focus of this conversation and the podcast a little bit more. And so we'll be talking a little bit about uh, some of the work you're doing around touch and consent, and I'm excited to jump into it. So let's, let's just start with that. You're a body worker and an educator, um, but you're also working on this really interesting project with Scarlett mm -hmm. Lewis, and that project's called Choose Love. And I wonder if you could tell my listeners a little bit about what you're doing with it and what it entails. Yeah, so I met Scarlett Lewis, and I should probably just give you some context of who Scarlett is. And I met her um, a little, uh, about four and a half years ago. So five years ago, uh, many of you will remember the Sandy Hook school shooting, and, and Scarlett lost her son, uh, Jesse in that uh, school shooting and I met her about nine months afterwards when her book came out Nurturing Healing Love um, because uh, we both published through the same pub uh, publishing house Hay House and we had a forward from Wayne Dyer for both of us so we got to meet each other and we became friends pretty quickly we stayed in contact and we um, met each other over the years and what Scarlett did with that event, with the grief um, that she still goes through, but what she has done with that energy and that the amount of, really the amount that, that, that mobilizes, it mobilizes a lot of energy. And so what she did with that is create something called Social Emotional Learning Program, which she's called the Jesse Lewis Choose Love Movement. Um, so that has kind of evolved over over the years, and now she has this program that's for free uh, for schools, um, elementary, middle school, and high school. 
And she was been telling me about it and saying that she's developing it and what's involved in it. It's a, an amazing program that's offered. And I said, so um, do you have touch as part of that? Because really touch is such a huge component of our social and emotional well-being. And uh, she said, no, we don't. But that's kind of a taboo topic, isn't it? And I, I said, well, yeah, it is. But that's probably why we should address it or take a look at that and take a look, you know, A, why is it taboo? And what could we do about that to change it? Because if we're if this program, which is, it does absolutely um, support the social emotional well-being of our children, then we need to look at all the components that would come in and um, support a child on that. But yeah, so that's where I have come in to uh, work with Scarlett. It's kind of evolved as I've been hearing her talk and um, watching how the, her program has been evolving and, and how it's been accessed by schools. I mean, probably you know, and many of your listeners know, there's a huge issue in the schools in terms of, um, if we look at bullying, suicide rates, um, classroom discipline is, is kind of all topics that we keep hearing about. And um, I think one of the things Scarlett realized actually that shocked her after the shooting was that she sent her children to school assuming, and uh, we should all be able to assume this, that her children were safe and well taken care of. And unfortunately for Scarlett, she came to realize that that was not true. And so she started to look at that and ask herself, well, what is it that's going on that means that, um, you know, this event happened? And one of the things she looked at was like, well, you know, I would just like to blame somebody. <laughs> and because that would be, you know, that would that would make me feel better. And so she looked at, well, who can I blame? She thought, well, I could blame Adam Langza, who's a school shooter, who was a shooter. But that would mean no shooting had happened before and no school shooting would happen afterwards. But we know there's been a school shooting every week since Sandy Hook. So she can't really do that. So we have to look at it as a society, as a collective and say, well, okay, whose job is it? And she ended up coming to the conclusion it was her job and everybody else's job to look at what's the solution to this. So that's how... Um, you know, she came to just look at and, and look at what happened to Adam Langzer. And he was really lost in the school system. He was somebody that was achieving grade level, but had huge social emotional problems. And because he was getting grade level, he could not access the services that were, were potentially available to him. So he kind of got lost in the system, too. And so we're kind of looking at how can we support everybody in this? So can you expound a little bit upon what social-emotional learning is and how mm -hmm. the project addresses it? So social-emotional learning looks at how can we support the children in, that, in the development of those areas. It's obviously not academic. But what we do know is that when a child is struggling social-emotionally, um, their brain is not at its best and is really not able to take in information and learn. So if we can come in and make sure the kids are supported in that arena, they're gonna do better academically. Whereas how we have the emphasis right now is it's all about academics. It's all about the test results, the, um, the uh, standardized testing. Um, 
and there's a big focus on that. It's starting to shift, but that has been where the school system has been at for a very long time. So, um, you know, if we think of more extreme examples of where children are living in uh, a lot of violence and there's a lot of trauma going on in their um, social environment, in their home environment. And then when they come into school, I mean, you and I know this as body workers and many of all the listeners will know this too as body workers. When, when, a, when we've lived through trauma, we know it's held in the tissue. We know the brain doesn't function as well. It's very much operating in emergency. You know, the, the blood supply to the different areas of the brain starts to shift. So how can we help the children's nervous system downregulate? How can we help the, them gather some tools, what works for them to start to calm things down, to start to be able to be present, start to have the brain that will engage in what's being presented to them. So many of those um, are along mindfulness. Um, uh, they'll introduce meditation. Um, in Scarlett's program, she's kind of looked at everything and just brought in everything, she, the best of the best, basically. She looked at everything. She had her team look at it and bring that in. So. There's breath techniques. Um, the, so here's the, here's the formula for choosing love is um, forgiveness. So how, how do we forgive? And I've watched Scarlett speak to elementary school kids, and they are fascinated by this topic. Because, you know, at that age, it's like, he kicked me. <laughs> it's like, you don't forgive the person that kicked you, right? You get revenge or you get mad. And you hold on to it for a long time. So um, she talked about how she forgave Adam Langza. And the kids are like, whoa, if you can forgive the person that shot your son, I can forgive my sister. I can forgive my friend. So they start to look at what that means because most of us get confused with that. We think that's condoning the behavior. And it's not. And it's not forgive and forget. It's not about forgetting. But it is about... The Scarlet describes cutting the cord to the person that hurt you. So there's forgiveness and there's courage. So it takes a lot of courage to do any of these things. So we talk about how do you um, use your courage and then compassion in action. So compa it's, uh, it's compassion in action because it's about acting. It's about being, you know, doing something about how you, you're showing your compassion, not just sort of, oh, yeah, I'm compassionate about that person. Like, how can I show that? Like, what could I do hmm. that would show my compassion? So that's the choose love formula. Um, and so where, do you, so where do you fit in this? So how, the, the touch part of it, how does that, so how does that play part, in? Yeah, so what I did, we, when we talked about it and we said, yeah, let's look at how we can do this. I took a look at how her program set up, which is you download it um, by modules. So it's there for the teacher to immediately learn from and take into the classroom. So I wanted to do it in the same way that so that people can access it and learn from it, but not have to take an awfully long time, not need special training out of the school, uh, out of the classroom. So I recorded uh, some videos. I actually interviewed some teachers in uh, the Montessori school that my children go to because touch is just included in the curriculum. 
And so we did one for elementary and middle school. I interviewed a school nurse who obviously uses touch all the time. And then we just did a separate uh, video around when uh, a child completely loses it and they need to be held and wrapped and held, you know, sort of then sort of really held to, to make themselves safe and the classroom safe. So we did uh, four videos and we did worksheets to go with each of them and an intro video that I recorded so that they can just watch, they're not long, so that they quick, that they can just watch those videos, look at the worksheets. And really the idea is to help a teacher figure out how they individually want to bring touch into the classroom because it's very, you know, you've got to make it work for you. We're all slightly different in our views and how we want to go about it, but really to break down a lot of the fear around it. And touch has to be comfortable. If you're if you're doing a prescription or a protocol that you're not comfortable with doing, the person's going to sense that that you're not comfortable touching them in that way, right. and right. then they're going to be uncomfortable. So that yeah. has, it, it, by 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 the essence of it, it, it necessitates uh, customization. Right, and yeah, and doing like exactly because if you if you're not yeah if you're not comfortable with it, it's not going to work. Mm. Yeah. So what are some of the common ways people make mistakes when they try to create safe touch? I think usually because people haven't looked at their own fear. <laughs> I mean, because uh, it's like if we're really holding a lot of fear in our bodies and discomfort, just like you named, it's not going to work. It's mm -hmm. not going to feel safe. So there was a study that was carried out at DePau University a little while ago, and they were, and they set out to measure whether touch could accurately uh, measure emotion, and they measured eight emotions, and through and they did not think it was possible. We did, they they weren't convinced that we could accurately read emotion through touch, but what they found out was that it was over seventy five percent accurate. So, in other words, we are really good at communicating through touch. You know, we actually, I think probably all of us in this field know that verbal communication really isn't that accurate, that we use nonverbal communication a lot. And that's a little more accurate. And, and this is just a great example of that. I mean, we all think, oh, it's about verbal communication. And if we get that down, we're, we're sorted. Like there'll be no confusion. Turns out touch is probably more clarifying. Yeah. So it sounds like when you say that the this helping to create safe touch is for, is starting from where you are when you create yeah. the safe touch. It's it's right. it's measuring uh, what state you're in. Exactly, and I think the more awareness we have of that, and I know that you interviewed Suzanne Skelter-Arana around um, presence and therapeutic presence, and I uh, you know I've trained extensively with Suzanne, and um, it's absolutely true. I mean, it's it's really so. So much, uh, so important that we're at ease with ourselves and that we're comfortable with the choice or the decision we're making. And all teachers know this anyway, you know, that whatever it is that they're teaching, if they're comfortable, if they know they have this topic down or they've taught for a number of years, they kind of exude that. And the kids feel more confident, they feel safe. Same with touch, right? If we don't, if we just are living in this fear, but we've never looked at what it is that we're, that the fear is about, 
or that we're given a blanket rule that do not touch children, then we we're constantly in this sort of uh, high alert state, which is not good for our kids either, or the or the teacher. <laughs> you know, it's a tiring state. So you bring up make, creating safe touch with the children. I'm curious: are there modifications you make when creating safe touch with children as opposed to adults? Uh, not really, because you know I went in and did an observation with um, a classroom of 18 month old to three-year-old there was a mix of 18 months three-year-old children in that classroom and uh you know when we think about that age group they're not that verbal so they have even less verbal skills than we've been talking about <laughs> and so touch is really used a lot with those kids when i really watch them and um i think bringing in uh awareness and consciousness when we start at that age and then carry it on all the way through to high school, we're going to take away some of the issues we're facing when we're looking at what's going on at high school. But the children do need to be taught. This isn't something that we innately, I mean, there's a bunch of stuff we innately know through our nervous system, but we don't really know how to moderate touch, how to uh, read a friend's, uh, um, if they say no, that means no and a little toddler will need help to understand that. And they may need help to understand what's a gentle touch. So if the teacher goes, gentle touch, let me show you gentle touch. Can you show me gentle touch? And rub the child's arm and help show them and teach them. The same with social emotional learning. This is not, uh, although it can be, although the kids pick it up very quickly, it is not innate. It does need to be taught. And do you find it has to be reinforced quite a bit, or is it oh, pretty yeah. much? Yeah. You think of toddlers, right? Oh, yes. <laughs> they, I mean, when they get enthusiastic and, and just really exuberant, I mean, they just may just run up and just like, grab, you know, hug a child. And this child is like, I don't, you know, he may be, that child may be deep in concentration on a piece of work or just simply not like that kind of uh, touch. Or they may need to be told, you know, we all have our different sensitivities. And so, yeah, of course, Mm. (laughs) impulse control is a big one at that age. Yeah. My instinct is that there has got to be a difference in the languaging that you use or the quality or the type or the amount or volume of languaging you use when teaching safe touch to adults versus kids. Is that not? Does that not play into it? Yeah, there's age appropriateness to it, right? Yeah. So um, that's the toddler classroom. When you get to elementary school, you know, the um, grade level, um, they are, uh, they need, again, just help with regulation. And just sometimes they um, will need to, you know, if they're getting impatient, for example, one of the things that the kids can do is just put a hand on the teacher's shoulder and say, I'm here and I'm waiting but they don't need to keep yelling at the teacher or acting out to get the teacher's attention. So there's that communication going on um, between the um, student and the teacher. Um, and then there are obviously the same, the same issues come around. It's like sometimes a child wants to be touched. So just it's, a lot is around teaching consent. But the environment and the situation, I mean, this is the big thing around touch is the... Um, 
it's always, always about the context. So the environment in which the touch is taking place is key. That's why you can't do, uh, or I'm, I have no desire to create ground rules to say, this is the way you do it. Because we have to really be thinking about it. We have to understand what are the core elements in it and then be making a decision in the moment because there's so many things to look at. Right. I think that's probably where there's uh, this reaction or defensiveness or a pullback from touch in general is feeling like the context may be too complex to understand and therefore mm -hmm. worried about making a mistake. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. There's a lot of fear around that. And some of that, when I was talking to the teachers about it in uh, the Montessori school, is because it's built into the classroom. Um, so if I, you know, some children like, I mean, particularly boys, love that sort of leaning in and more that deeper pressure. I remember watching um, my son with his uh, classroom watching a, a play, you know, on a school trip. And I think they were around probably nine years old. And I watched the boys all sitting next to each other. They were constantly banging into each other. I mean, it was like watching little ping pong balls, you know, waving around on the seats. I mean, they're constantly in motion and they're constantly touching each other, you know, not like reaching out and grabbing, but just banging into each other, really, <laughs> was what it looked like. Um, and so it's just like, yeah, that's kind of like a healthy nervous system and it's a healthy sort of dialogue in a way that's going on and um so just really yeah i mean why i mean to sit still with your hands tucked in for an hour and a half watching a play when you're a nine-year-old boy i mean that's just that's, that's that's not a pleasant uh situation mm -hmm. well switching gears just slightly we talk about how touch has kind of become taboo or people become a little fearful of touch i'm curious what your opinion is with regards to like, what are the biggest contributors to touch being a taboo in our society? Mm -hmm. Well, of course, the big elephant in the room, and I always sort of name it when I'm talking to people, is sexual abuse. So that's the big fear. That's the um, the big elephant, really. It's like, well, don't if if you don't touch, there's no way sexual abuse is happening. So that will keep the children safe. So the way I look at that is I, I think what happens is because if there's no healthy touch, like I was describing, just allowing the boys to bang into each other or, you know, for a teacher just to, or for a student just to lean into a teacher if they're just needing some comfort, just, so, you know, they're having a hard day or they've, you know, got a tough situation at home. They just need to lean in while they're studying and working. That should be, you know, that should be okay. That should be... Um, in fact, you know, so, so there's multiple things. So there's that piece, right? So it's allowing touch to happen. And if we go to the opposite extreme where no touch is happening and you have a child in emotional distress and you're not allowed to touch that child. I have seen it's a paper that was written by the British Psychological Society saying that's abuse. Because that is it's almost inhumane, right? I, I mean, as me as a body worker, I can't even imagine not having that tool at my disposal. So, uh, and, and, and kids can get into such a frenzy, and we do as adults, actually, where 
we haven't really got the verbal skills. We can't explain ourselves. We can't rationalize. We've just, we've gone beyond that. And we need some help to calm down so that we can get to that point again. So, um, and the other argument that I have about it, or the discussion I like to have is if children don't know what healthy, compassionate touch is, like they just have not really had a lot of experience of it because of their own home environment, social environment. What sort of what knowledge base do they have as they move into adult life or as they start to become more sexually active? Like they have, how do they know? Like what's safe, what's healthy, what's, um, what's non-sexual touch? You know, it's like they, how do they know that whole continuum? I mean, touches on this huge, big continuum to being harmful and abusive, to being tremendously powerfully healing. And we've got everything in between that. And it also feels like if, if the main reason to, to avoid touch because it's taboo is because we're scared of what it might mean because we don't understand the implications of it, it then begs to reason, well, you can educate yourself on how to mm-hmm. do that. So that mm-hmm. you do know what the context is and you feel secure in your ability to reach out and extend touch mm-hmm. without opening yourself up to accusations or misreading a situation and behaving inappropriately. Yeah. And consent obviously is the huge issue. And with children, um, you can, if, if you open up your arms, they know there's a hug on offer and they can move in for that or they won't. You don't go grab them, obviously, right? Um, or if we put out a hand, they can take that hand or not. And as adults, that we can do the same thing. And we can use the words, like, may I touch you? And that's what I was talking about. They teach um, those 18-month-olds to do, may I touch? So you have the question, you have the physical gesture. And in my practice, in my uh sacral practice and I for many many years did pediatric physical therapy where I was touching children all the time and and consent is the same and though each time I see that uh, the child and maybe working with them weekly there's still that consent are they ready for for the touch are they do they do they need to do something else first or do they need to talk for a little bit before before touch happens what are the most common mistakes that people make with regards to children when it comes to consent? So you talked about a ways to appropriately do it. What are the, some of the ways that um, people mess up? Well, the classic is um, always uh, when you have when a child is with a relative that gives them the creeps, <laughs> and they say, "Go and go and give so and so a kiss or a hug," and the child is and you see them literally cringing. They do not want to do it for whatever reason that is. It it could be correct. It could be incorrect. But if the child doesn't want to do that, we don't override Mm. their instinct. Because their instinct is telling them, I don't want to do it. It doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel right. I don't feel safe. So we don't override it. Um, same when I don't know how many children you have in your massage practice, but you know, it's the same when they come in for uh, body work. 
the parent can say, look, it's okay. Just, the you know, and they're sort of telling their child to do it, to cooperate, because they're kind of embarrassed. But it's just uh, helping the parent know, it, you know, it's okay. We're, we're, we'll do it when they're ready. And we'll, maybe we'll just play a game first. Hmm. And maybe they could sit on your lap. And then they may be okay with it. But having it so that the child is still in charge, basically, of what happens to their body is kind of the bottom line. Yeah. Are there any studies or um, statistics you're aware of with regards to what happens to children who are more exposed to touch and to safe touch um, and how that affects them later on in life? Yeah. So what they've found, and I... I won't be able to quote the paper to you right now, but I know that I've read that um, they are more resilient. They are more able to uh, go with a, to be in different situations and self-regulate and be able to find out what it is, go find what they need to feel good in that situation. Uh on the flip side of that, the opposite would be the studies they've done on um, children that have had very been very deprived of touch, you know, in the orphanages, uh, and also what they found on the neonatal unit for premature babies. You know, they found that they did um, that the the health of the babies is a lot better when they receive skin to skin touch, like the kangaroo care. Mm-hmm. So. With a lot of that information, we know how much it supports the nervous system to be healthy and thriving. Excellent. Well, if you can send me those links, I'll post them in the show notes so people have access mm-hmm. to some of those studies and can, can read up and, and learn more about how touch can affect, affect children and as they grow. Yeah. Uh, so back to this Choose Love project, how would you see massage therapists either contributing to or benefiting from, from that specific project? So I think, you know, uh, baby massage is obviously, you know, just thinking about that, that's another place where, you know, it's um, a lot of people will talk about that and seek that out, go to classes, you know, when they have new babies. Um, But uh, I know that uh, a lot of massage therapists do see children and often children who are having issues regulating their nervous system. So they may be on that spectrum of ADHD or the um, autism spectrum or special needs children will often do really well with massage. So just really having that same awareness. And um, there's, uh, you know, like I was describing that situation where if there's parents like making the child receive the touch before they're ready, um, helping educate, just helping role model, um, you know, help when the child is ready and allowing them to be in charge of when they're touched and how they're touched and checking in with them. How's this, you know, how's this feel? Hmm. Is this okay? And are you aware of any pediatric uh, workshops, classes, or training resources for massage therapists to learn how to do pediatric body work? I don't. Do you? I I don't. That's why I ask. That's why I ask. I'll do some research on that and see if I can, I can, I can track that down. I know friends that do do massage for special needs kids, um, but I don't know if they went to special, you know, went to school specifically for it. Mm. Yeah. Okay. I, of course, asked this question to one of your, your co-authors, Robin Schur. 
And I'm mm -hmm. curious if you have a favorite failure or uh, most memorable failure in your career with regards to body work, uh, or working mm -hmm. with clients. Well, I've seen a theme <laughs> and it's kind of continual, although I can see progress in it. But one of my, uh, one of my, I would say failures or the way I fail um, is with trying to be everything to anybody. So it's kind of, I was probably the archetype of being the rescuer, which um, is probably not unfamiliar to many of us who are in body work um, because what brings us in, you know, is often the shadow as well as the, the gold part of that. <laughs> and so I've seen that, um, I've seen that trip me up many, you know, consistently over the years. And as I've brought more awareness to it, um, have done work in supporting myself and taking a look at that, particularly, you know, with the work with Suzanne Skelet-Drana about my therapeutic presence and about my boundaries uh, and being more comfortable in asserting those and saying, you know what, I, I can't meet the need of, of who you are and what you're presenting, but I know there are people that can and referring on. So I think, uh, yeah, I think that's been one of the things I cont have continued to work on over all of mm. these 30 odd years I've been in this field. And is there a specific <laughs> moment like about that or uh, event when that happened that comes oh. to you? In thinking of one client who I've actually had in my cranial practice, I think for 15 years now. And over the years, I've watched how I have tightened up my boundaries and she's still in my practice. It's really interesting. It's like I would return calls to her at way outside my hours or if I was doing a workshop, I would return her call and I'd be on the phone for a while. And uh, then I was like, you know, I said, I know that you need that you want to say uh, what's going on for you. And here's what I can do. I can, leave me a message and I will listen to the message, but I don't have the time to return your call. And uh, so I, you will be in my thoughts. So that so now she does that, and in fact she does she does that less now. But um, she's somebody that's been my teacher for all you know around. You know, I would say tucking me myself in. You know, getting better boundaries around that. Uh, for and I've watched because she's in crisis a lot, so I would be reacting. And I've watched over the years. I'm like, wow, this is a pattern, and she's in crisis, in and out of crisis a lot. And um, I don't think she's ever expected me to save her, but I thought I should. And um, so I've just really learned a lot just by sitting back and reflecting on my clients that have been good at teaching me that. And yeah. uh, also, you know, when, when I've just really said, you know, that's not going to work. Like I had somebody that was always um, trying to re reschedule her appointment all the time and I would accommodate that. And then uh, I was like, you know, I can't do this anymore. And then one time, I remember she sent me a, a screenshot of, uh, she didn't come to her appointment on time, and she screenshotted her phone where she put it in at the wrong time or the wrong day or whatever it was, and saying, you know, look, it's, it's not my fault. <laughs> <laughs> I was like... That's an interesting psychological yeah. trick. It's so not your I, fault that you put it in wrong. Right. So I'm like, so I said, yeah, but you're still, you still need to pay for that missed appointment. 
So she didn't come again. And I, I knew that and I was okay with that because I really didn't want to be spending my time and energy. I mean, I would lose more money from missed, you know, her rescheduling and me not being able to fill. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, I would say that my, that's one of my constant learnings. All right. Well, if people want to learn more about you or the work that you do or more about the Choose Love Project, what's the best way for them to learn about you? Uh, to go to my website, which is kmckinnon.com, which is K-M-A-C-K-I-N-N-O-N.com. And I do monthly newsletters. So if people are interested in staying updated, that's a great way to do it. Awesome. Cool. And before we go, do you have any questions for me? Yeah, I would love to know uh, what's the, what, have you, what gems have you learned by interviewing all these people? Because <laughs> you oh, must be man. learning a lot. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a very big question. I, I, I don't think I could do it justice in terms of any one particular thing because each interview I have, I learn something or I learn yeah. many things. Mm. Uh, I've found that some episodes are extremely mind-expanding and other ones are more heart-opening. Uh, I remember did a, a podcast with uh, called Infant Massage with Joanne Lewis, mm. uh, and it kind of touches on some of the subject matter we've been talking about today. And there was a moment where she brought up how they have classes on military bases, mm. and they work with the service members, and that the highest rate of suicide in the armed forces is within the population of service members within the two years after they miss the birth of their kid <laughs> and trying to reintegrate with their family and feeling isolated and not connected to their family. Mm. And it made me emotional at that, at the moment. And it actually mm -hmm. makes me a little emotional now um, mm. learning about how touch safe, consensual touch can change people's lives it can save yeah. lives and yeah. I'm, you know, there's lots of different factors that play into uh those life-altering decisions that they make but uh, you know studies don't lie there is an impact that is that is created uh when when we show up with with our hands and yeah. and can educate others and can and show people what compassionate touch can do so mm. that that's an example of one moment yeah. that really struck me. And uh, like I said, different podcasts open me in different ways. Um, but that's one that comes to me right now. Oh, that's great. Love it. Cool. Well, again, thank you so much, Kate. I really <laughs> appreciate you taking the time to, to talk with me. And I'm sure we'll talk again soon. Yeah, thank you. Well, thank you so much for tuning in today. If you enjoyed the episode, please go ahead and review it on iTunes. And if you have any questions that you had wished I had asked or topics you want me to cover in the future, please visit the website at www.housethepressure.com where you can send me an email and hopefully I can include it. Until next time, be good and be well. Mm -hmm.